Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Duchess of Science, here to answer your anonymous questions on how to survive and thrive in academia. This time, I'm joined by social psychologist, Dr. Petra Boynton, professional agony aunt and author of the books, The Research Companion, and Being Well in Academia, Ways to Feel Stronger, Safer, and More Connected. So who better to help early career researchers find their feet? Dear Duchess, I told a stupid lie at undergraduate, and now I'm worried it's going to come back to haunt me. I was on a field trip in my second year, and after a bit too much wine, I claimed that I'm distantly related to a prominent scientist in our field. The lie took on a life of its own, and quite often came up in conversations with people that I've never met before. I never bothered to set the record straight. I didn't see myself staying in academia, and it seemed like a fairly harmless white lie. Fast forward five years, and I now find myself working in a department with someone who actually does share their name. And I don't know whether they're related or not, but every time I see or hear the name, I'm reminded that there are a lot of my peers who still believe my undergraduate lie. The thought of it coming up in conversation fills me with anxiety. How do I fix this lie? I think we've all been there, haven't we? That we've said or done something that that we kind of later wish we hadn't said or done. Um, Particularly I mean, I think, undergraduate, I think, because everyone oh, yeah. comes in being told this is your chance to reinvent yourself, mm-hmm. and I think I think a lot of people have done it. Absolutely, and and I think with no malice either. It's not that people are doing these things to be deliberately bad or mislead. It's just they say something and then they can't get out of it, and and yeah, then they're sort of stuck with it. I mean, I think for this particular situation, probably. The best advice is, is, you know, for now, just leave it. Um, if somebody does mention it, you can say that you just thought you were related. You know, you don't have to go into more details. Uh, it's probably easier than unpacking the entire lie. Um, and, and hopefully it will be, be left aside. I mean, there's sometimes more, more worrying situations, I think, where you've said something that's provably untrue. And that's much harder, in which case I think you have to say, look, um, I said that when I was an undergraduate, it was a mistake. I didn't mean it. Um, I'm sorry. And and then hopefully move on. But but with this one, I think, you know, it can be explained away as you thought that you were distantly related. Probably you aren't, you know, who's going to well, know? Well, we're all distantly related. We are. I yes. think that's what I would hold on to is just, you know, you give a, a fudgy answer of like, it's my second cousin twice removed. I don't think people check. No, and I think the thing with things like this is that it becomes a huge sort of deal in your head, but other people probably aren't thinking it. And that's the, the big thing to remember with troubles is that the, the, the problem you have feels overwhelming and you can be you know, under the impression that everybody else thinks about it the same way as you do, is as invested in it as much as you are, are as troubled by it as much as you are. And most of the time they've forgotten about it. It may not even come up again, but if it does, this one is a relatively easy one to bat away without feeling guilty. Um, it wasn't done maliciously. Time to move on. I, for other problems, if it really is troubling you, either take action if you think it's something you can amend and, and hold your hands up and say you did, or move on from from in other ways so for example if you did something in the past that you now wish you hadn't you can make changes by doing positive things into the future and and focus on those yeah I mean absolutely I can see I can feel like the temptation with this this person to um address it publicly and set the record straight put put an end to the anxiety but I think I think you make an important point that actually we're all a bit self-obsessed 
in some ways, and we all think that everybody is paying us a lot more attention than they actually are. Especially at the moment, I think everybody's got troubles of their own and they're really probably not thinking too much about stuff. And if you do suddenly start saying, I need to tell you about something I did, you know, five years ago or seven years ago that most people wouldn't be bothered about, you are, but they aren't, it probably would create an enormous drama that that isn't really necessary. So it's a balance, isn't it? Because sometimes we have done things in the past that could cause problems to us or other people in the future. And those are probably things worth holding our hands up to and saying, yes, I did this and I'm, I'm making amends. But even there, I think it's about whose who's story are you, are you kind of um, intruding on? Because sometimes when things happen, we want to say, oh, yes, I did this bad thing. And the attention all comes on to you when it should be on somebody else. So you can often make amends privately or maybe tell some friends about it if you want to offload it and, and have maybe a cry about it or a laugh about it and then it's done but it it doesn't necessarily not everything has to play out in public Mm. actually I think this person has obviously worried about this quietly on their own maybe just tell your friends when you're drunk and have a laugh about it and you know it diffuses it it does it takes that away and you can just say right okay this happened and it's not the first time you will make you know maybe not necessarily pretend you're distantly related to somebody but you know if you've chosen a career in in academia you will make mistakes all the time and I think people get very panicked that that what they see is a very glossy image of academia where everything goes really well you know there's a perfect paper or somebody's tweeting about a success they had and you don't see failure and you don't hear about people being really really worried or making huge mistakes even when failure is talked about, it's always in a kind of triumphant way in that, well, I didn't pass this exam, but look at me now, I'm a professor, rather than the fact that I made these catastrophic errors throughout my career. So, you know, it's resting assured you're going to mess up. We all do. It's how you own that and how you own that in a way that's good for you and doesn't overburden other people. Absolutely. And I think also as people go forward in their career, they feel much more comfortable, much more secure, much more likely to make up a, a strange fib to feel like they belong and so I think I think that's obviously something that will come with experience and yeah so should we look at our next one please do dear duchess since lockdown began I've been at home with my husband and child and I'm exhausted after preparing three meals a day providing supervision for schoolwork as well as the majority of the housework I'm finding very little time for my actual job My husband is working from home and reappears from his study in time for dinner. I feel like I've become an involuntary housewife at the expense of my own research. Seriously, how are we supposed to fit everything into 24 hours? I'm feeling this one (laughs) very much. Um, Many people will be feeling this. Um, And the answer, the quick answer to this is you're not meant to fit anything in uh, in that time frame. You just can't. And we've been saying this at the start of, of, of sort of lockdown as different countries are lifting their lockdowns to greater or lesser degrees, we're kind of forgetting that this is still life for lots of people. And it will be for some while while schools remain closed or partially open is what we're seeing in a lot of places. Um, so there is this ongoing problem that the burden of work is being placed unfairly on women. And that has been documented in, in numerous accounts, uh, anecdotal and also some research that's starting to come out. We're already seeing women's ability to do research and to publish and to be productive in academic circles tanking. It's it's just falling off the radar. So I, I think one key thing for people listening who aren't affected by this is to note that there's a problem and to be accepting and understanding 
and to also maybe flag up within departmental meetings or other um, events that are going on that there is this inequality and to ask people. Something I've noticed uh, throughout this period is that there's been lots of people talking about how unfair it is, but not a single person has actually said to me, how are you actually coping? What does it feel like? Um, maybe they're scared that I will suddenly go, and start crying and telling them what it feels. I might tell them. Um, um, but there is this whole sense of, I think, checking in with people is really important, asking about it. There's probably nothing you could do, but listening is important. And actually, there might be something you could do. You just don't know. So I think that's, for, for people who are not involved in this directly, that's one thing they could do. I think there's also the issue, um, before we come on to what's happening in this relationship, um, to think about single people who don't have dependents are still struggling. There are issues of loneliness and there are issues of isolation and there are issues of being probably burdened with work because it's assumed they've got no dependents, they can take that on. And flagging that up for them is important because it's easy for us to become divisive in this situation, that, that people are pitted against each other and barriers form. So acknowledging that before we talk further is important. The key people who can make a difference here are men, uh, men who are husbands and fathers. Um, because they are generally the ones who are, I think, not noticing that these relationships are very being quickly slipped into, particularly in academic relationships, where you'll see that that even where both of them have got academic work to do, it's women primarily who are taking up the childcare. But if you're an academic and your partner is not, and you're both home working, there's still this expectation that you will be uh, given this role. That might be because the school are the only ones emailing you. That's been happening a lot. So, you know, you can make this your partner's problem by including them on the email and reminding the school to do the same. There's also the fact that if you've got children that are able to contribute to the home, that you all work out a rota together. So for the question that we've had here, it's allowing this person that, that contacted you and all of us who are in the same position to say, this is really hard and we're finding it really difficult and we're torn in all directions. We're failing at everything, failing at our academic lives and at parenting and at homeschooling and all the other things. And that is hard. And to just have that moment to say that's hard. Um, but then to say, well, what about a rota? Because if you've got people in the home who are capable of contributing, who can help tidy, who can help wash up, who can help hoover, who can help cook? It's not just your job. In this case, that the, the provision of three meals a day where there's two capable adults in the house does not need to be borne by one adult only. Both of them are working. In this case, the woman's doing two jobs. She's looking after the children. She's doing the homeschooling and she's doing her own academic work. Actually, that's three jobs, isn't it? So, you know, so either there's the acceptance that, OK, um, you know, some people have negotiated with their departments that, that they can't do as much academic work. Um, but even where you've negotiated that successfully and not everybody has because not all departments are sympathetic, you're still mindful of the fact that you're missing out on things. So that's psychologically hard and career limiting. So really, it's the case of fairness and it's talking with partners and saying, actually, I'm doing all of these things and you are not so can we share our roles so that we both do helping with homeschooling and the childcare? Maybe you do some of the homeschooling, but they stop their work at a set time so you can get on with your own work. Maybe it's a case that you work out a daily routine where you're both doing helping with homeschooling and some helping with childcare. Um, and there's time for relaxation as well, because I think what a lot of um, women are saying or, or mothers are saying is that they've done all the homeschooling and they've done all the childcare. And then it's their time to do work. And it's normally somewhere in the evening where they're completely exhausted. So is it a case that there's certain days a week that you might not be doing the homeschooling in the morning, but you are the one working and you just appear when it's lunchtime and then you swap that one over? Um, these things are really easy to say in theory. The thing that we're hearing about very often is that, that men are very resistant to this. 
that when they're asked to contribute, they become angry, they become defensive, they become, uh, they'll sort of say the mantra, well, I'm earning or I'm, 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 I'm doing the work or whatever. And so I think a reminder of the fact that actually lockdown is different. We've both got to look after the children and that's their childcare needs and their homeschool needs. Some families have just said, well, you know what? We're near the end of the term anyway. I'm just not going to bother. I'm stopping the schoolwork now and I'm just going to say to the school I can't. But that works if you've got children that are of an age that can occupy your, themselves while you're working. We're still yeah, seeing... that's one thing I, I thought in this letter is that she doesn't tell us how old her child is. And I think that does make a difference because, you know, looking after an infant is, is wildly different to... Yes. Um, you know, having a six-year-old or a teenager, yeah. so... And you might have a child that that's, could be put in front of the TV for a couple of hours while you work, and if that's a case, that's great, and you should not feel guilty for that at all. Um, you might have a teenager that can fairly well occupy themselves, but equally, not all young people can do that. They may feel very lonely and want to be around you. There's also the case that, that very young children need a lot of attention because they're not just going to sit there quietly. And if you're involved in work, you'll suddenly find that the house has gone quiet and they're not where you left them and, you know, terrible things have happened upstairs and the bath's being flooded or something like that. So, yeah, there's that whole issue around the assumption that children will just occupy their own time. And for those of us who've got special needs children, there's also the issue of attending to disabilities and their, their particular needs, whether that's physical care or emotional care. So, you know, it's a, it's a case, I think, for, for all of us to have a heart-to-heart -heart with partners and say, this is what I'm actually doing. Maybe even draw it out. This is what I'm spending my day doing. How much of this can you take on? How can we work out a rotor? How can we do it? How can you talk to your employers and say, you know, actually, I need to be doing some parenting here and homeschooling here as well. Um, not all employers have been kind about this. It's fair to say. But this, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And I think that, that if you don't try and just assume that that won't happen, well, it won't happen. Um, so, I mean... There's a separate issue, I think, from this about where it flags up a wider relationship inequality or relationship problems where actually you need more focus on perhaps relationship counselling or even issues around communication. Um, I would say for anybody who's listening who's in a relationship that, that is risky or violent, that actually sometimes the safer thing to do while you're in lockdown is just to continue with this, even if it's making you unhappy, rather than try and have a negotiation about sharing workload, if that's going to result in violence towards you. And again, I think for people listening who are, uh, you know, um, resistant to the idea of taking on their fair share, the fact that some people cannot even vo vocalise this because of fear of violence should give you a sense of how unequal and how unfair these things are. The rates of domestic violence have gone through the roof during lockdown. So, but, you know, in all of this, I think your safety and well-being comes first. And it's wrong that it should be a juggling act like that. But I think realistically, it'd be wrong of me not to mention that if it would put somebody in danger. Um, and I hope it wouldn't. But I think we have to put that out. Yeah, I, I've also seen that, that uh, the rates of domestic violence have rocketed. Um, but also one of the things that came up that you mentioned is about communication and yeah, I just wanted to mention the fact that I've spoken to so many couples and so many men who have an attitude of, um, well, my wife enjoys doing these jobs. So I, I gave it a lot of thought and um, I came up with the idea of 
You know how people will sometimes keep a diary of everything that they eat and everything that, you know, they're feeling and things like that to sort of discover if there's a pattern. I wondered if it might be useful for some married couples to actually keep a diary of the tasks that they actually do, but also to make a note of whether they are actually things that they actively enjoy, because I think there is a myth amongst men that because these things get done, usually without any complaining, because, you know, it just needs doing, that I think they are living in a bit of a fantasy land where <laughs> women actually love a bit of ironing. They love doing all of these things. They love the childcare. And I'm not saying that women don't and women don't enjoy those things. But I think, you know, as you say, we're seeing during lockdown that uh, publication rates are plummeting for women. And I think it would just be really good for everyone to really communicate and say, because actually you might discover that your husband loves doing a lot of things that you, you never knew he enjoyed. And he's just thinking, I better not mention it because I don't want to like rob my wife of you know, doing this washing up that she absolutely loves. And, and, you know, I think it is something that people don't actually speak about. It's just assumptions based on gender roles. Absolutely. And I think we've certainly seen time and again that people tend to overestimate what other people do. So men tend to overestimate how, how much they contribute. And there's also the problem that if you don't like a job, tend to overestimate how long it takes you. So a lot of women are doing household work that seems to be never ending um, because they don't want to be doing it and they're not enjoying it. Men tend to also take on the household chores they like. So when it's shared, the way it tends to be approached is that there'll be a list shared and then the men will say, well, I like doing this and they'll take all the stuff they like doing first. So I think when you, when you do share, you know, I think your diary idea is great. And I think it also helps you sort of look at two things one is what you're doing all day which explains why you're so exhausted and also um the the, the number of tasks that need doing and what they specifically are so that helps you put together your your rotor and when you've got your list is to look at who actually wants it so you take on certain things you like doing and certain things you don't like doing but there's an equal share of both because what you often find is that men will say well, i love doing the cooking and then they'll cook a fantastic meal and then the kitchen's trashed and, and women have got to tidy all of the washing up from that. So it's the sense that the jobs you take on, you have a mix of what ones you enjoy and ones you don't particularly like doing. And also the fact that whatever you take on doesn't create additional for the other person in your life. So, you know, if you take on washing, you don't have to keep asking your partner how you do the washing. If you take on cooking, you don't trash the kitchen. It's, it's that sort of um, sharing, I think, could be very beneficial indeed. Mm -hmm. And the time that goes into tasks, because, I mean, it's a big favourite in most households that men put as a particular task, taking out the rubbish. Taking yes. out the rubbish takes, you know, five minutes of your time. And yes. yet, you know, it's sort of assigned the same importance as hoovering the whole house, for example. Yes, yes. So I, I think, you know, a diary, you know, looking at which tasks you enjoy, but also how long they actually take. Because yes. I, think, I, I think you can get cheated quite easily. In the you certainly can. You certainly can. I mean, the, the, out the, the rubbish one is a good example. Mowing the lawn is another one. You might do that every week or every fortnight. You know, it's, you're, not, you're not doing it every day. And there's something about the relentlessness of monotonous everyday tasks that never stop and have to be done, which actually is fair. And anybody who lives alone as well, if you live alone, you've got to keep, no one's going to do it for you. So that's exhausting as well. Um, 
But I think if you're doing this job for other people that you're caring for, and you've suddenly taken on the care needs of an extra adult that could perfectly capably do it, assuming they can, if they can, then they should be joining in. Um, I mean, for example, with, with homeschooling, it's it's not just the fact that you're having to cajole and teach and encourage and put up with the tantrums when it doesn't get done or cheerlead when it goes well and all of the work that goes with that. Um, it's the fact that you're getting no time to yourself. So, you know, yes, while you're working privately, it might be exhausting and tiring, but that is isolated time for you. It's not the same as having one or two or three or however many um dependence requiring your attention and focus and energy and if you're kind of going from that straight to your own working I mean that this is something I, I struggle with and I'm sure lots of other people do is that where do I find the energy to be inspired and to write and, and to do stuff and to suddenly you know be enthusiastic about something if I've had all morning you know cleaning up mess and crying and, and tantruming or, or whatever else it is I've been dealing with. And that's why a lot of people have just stopped bothering with the schoolwork because it's too exhausting. But even if you stop with the schoolwork, you've still got a parent. So, you know, I, I think it's that sense of, of allowing, you know, not just sharing the chores, but acknowledging the emotional labor that just goes into never actually having a minute to yourself. Yeah, maybe one thing I, I would add to this letter writer is actually to just sort of give her license to give herself a break. Mm-hmm. You know, some, something has to give and, you know, you're surviving, surviving during a pandemic, keeping everyone alive, you know, keeping three meal, meals a day coming. Absolutely. It's enough. Yeah. You know, you're doing the absolute best you can. I mean, some people have said instead of negotiating or making lists, because that's the other thing as well, is when you make a list, it's you who've got to sit down and make the list. You know, it's like another job. So if you're going to make the list, the list has to be done collaboratively. Or even if you start it, the, the list activity has to be done collaboratively. But equally, some people have said, you know what, actually, I'm just going to go into that meeting and say, I've got to do some work now. I just go and do the work, you know, and, and let whatever happens, happen. Obviously, that's a difference if you've got children who are very young, very vulnerable, it's you can't necessarily do that but if there are if there's an opportunity to either have a you know go in and have a bath and shut the door and ignore them or or that you can say actually this is my time and you just take your time because that's something else I think you'll see that there's a difference is that men will go and just take that time they don't ask for permission they don't do it they just do it what happens if you just go and do that you know if your relationship is good you should be able to and so that works better because you're not there to micromanage or supervise. Everyone just has to get on with it if you're not there. And that's useful, I think, for your children to see as well, is that you're not there to actually have to make everything happen, that somebody else has to take responsibility also. So it's about your relationship and your comfort level. And again, that reminder of not doing anything at this point that could put you in danger. And if you really are in danger, then you speak to a domestic violence charity. And if you are in lockdown, you are allowed to leave, you know, if you are at risk and do that so it might be some people are recognizing that their relationship is over and so if you can't make the changes now you can use this time to plan how you're going to end it once restrictions lift yeah so continuing from that slightly dark subject onto onto another one um so this is actually just a question that I wanted to ask you about um in light of everything that we're seeing with the Black Lives Matter movement um I was particularly interested to ask you, as a white lady in academia, 
um, what you feel that some of your other white colleagues could be doing to support their black colleagues and students at this time. Um, I'm particularly asking you because I, I'm noticing certainly on social media that a lot of people who are definitely not racist but maybe haven't previously been engaged or very aware um, of all of these issues are suddenly becoming a bit aware and they do want to be supportive and they do want to engage, but sometimes it does go a little bit wrong. Um, and I think it makes people nervous. It makes people nervous to say anything. And I, I think we all know that at the moment, silence is not an option. People do need to speak up. So I was just wondering if you personally have any tips for people that want to be supportive and how to not get it hideously wrong. I think, I mean, the point you've made about social media makes a huge difference here. Um, it's a great opportunity for learning um, and, and understanding and finding out. Um, it's also a great opportunity to publicly mess up. And, and I think that's been seen by some white people, certainly in academia, that, that uh, you know, a white person says something, that they're criticised publicly for it, and people are like, well, I better not say anything because I don't want that to happen to me. Or, or worse still, a, a, sort of a sense that, that um, this absolves you of having to do anything because if you try, you'll be told off immediately and therefore there's no point in trying. So as a white person, I mean, I, I always think it's important to say that that you know, if you've been raised in a racist uh, country and culture, which, you know, I have, that I, I think the idea of saying I'm not racist or I'm not racist, but never really works because I, I am, I can't not be. Um, so I know that makes some people very uncomfortable because we want to, you know, white people want to be nice and kind. Well, lots of white people don't, but the ones of us that do, I think want to flag up that we're kind and nice. Um, and that's often expressed as I don't see colour or um, I'm not racist. Um, I mean, you can't not see colour. So if you think you don't, that's your first step is to start noticing and noticing your own colour, I think, immediately. And whiteness is really important. Um, and I think for me, that's been a, a big shift in, in um, a sort of anti-racist practice in that you know, my lifetime, I think things have changed significantly and, and each generation has had their own ways of working and the ways they thought best to deal with um, racism. Um, and whiteness and challenging it is, is, I think, very new for a lot of people who are stepping into this area and thinking about white privilege and what does that actually mean. And there's lots of resources. People have written books about it and you can learn. And and I, I, I'd say that, that if this is new to you, that would be the place to begin. Um, I'm not saying I'm an expert because I'm learning every day as well, but that I think if it's very new to you would be the place that I would start because that's where I began. One tip I would say is that um, it's very tempting because you want to get it right to ask black colleagues um, for your reading list. So what read, what should I do? What should I do here? What should I do now? Um, noting, of course, our black colleagues are utterly exhausted and, and fed up with saying um, what to do and being ignored. So you can, you know, you're an academic, you've got research skills, you can do this stuff. And loads of people at the moment are sharing, you know, in fact, we can't really move for anti-racist reading lists. So there's, you're spoiled for choice at the moment. There's lots to read. 
I think reading is good and thinking about it is good and reflecting on it is good. And maybe setting up some reading groups with other white people. Um, not with a black it because, you know, again, that's putting the work on them. But other white people to think about it. You'll notice that quite a lot of people are say, sharing anti-racist syllabi. So, you know, is there a syllabus you could use? Is there something you could work through on your own um, or with some friends and colleagues? Again, quite a lot of white people at this point think, oh, oh, I don't want to do that because some of my friends and colleagues are racist or they might be racist or um, that's difficult um, or they might be resistant. Well, first of all, try because you might be surprised who wants to join you. And secondly, trying is important because actually that lets you have those difficult conversations. Now, you might not feel qualified to do them just yet. You might want to read up first. Um, and I think it's also when you're talking to other white people, the conversations you are having are based on whiteness. So again, it's learning about that, challenging that, and then also talking about wider anti-racist activities. Um, so, you know, go in prepared. Uh, another thing that I think is really important to notice is that if this is new to you, I'm seeing a lot of people, and I've seen this, you know, in the past as well, uh, that, that you, again, with really good intentions, want to, to signify that this is this is something that's really upsetting you and bothering you. Um, so you'll say, oh, my goodness, this is awful, or I can't believe this is still happening. Whereas all your black colleagues will be like, well, we live with this every day. And yes, it is really awful. And you should believe this is still happening. Why, why, why are you not believing it's not happening? So I, I think... Being able to have those reactions is, is really important. It's not denying that, that, that you're upset or distressed, and you should be fellow human beings. But that I don't think that needs to necessarily be shared in some of the ways that you're doing, or that you're prefixing your call to white people to take anti-racist action as saying, oh, this is so shocking, or this is so upsetting, because there's something about expressing shock over other people's daily trauma that almost re-traumatizes them, that, that it's actually very upsetting to hear and see um, um in saying all that you know i'll say this now and there'll be people listening who'll say that's ridiculous you shouldn't be doing that that's silly that's not the right way to do it there isn't a kind of a correct way and i i, I think again this is where when you want to be an ally it's 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 a challenge because the heart of being an ally is you want to get it right you don't want to make mistakes and and the reason i don't want to make mistakes is that i don't want to upset anybody any more than they've already been upset so um, acknowledging you're going to do that and you will mess up and you will mess up time and time again, but that you can learn about it is good. And I think that if you are called out on something you've done wrong is, is to try not to be defensive, although that's really difficult. And again, I think if you start finding yourself being defensive is to go back to your readings and your reflections and maybe talking to other white people about how your defensiveness reenacts itself, because quite often you will, it's not being deliberately racist, but you will be being racist in the fact that you will start taking on a position of authority, that you will expect people to listen to you behave or modify behavior, or that if you get upset, challenge, that you expect them to attend to your distress. Um, and that I, I think lots of uh, black colleagues have talked about when they've tried to do anti-racist training in university spaces or academic spaces that white people tend to get quite upset and they will either try and show how not racist they are or they might cry or, or, or I mean, sometimes they become very angry and defensive, but the kind of 
this sort of nice white lady trope, I think, of sitting there and sobbing and expecting your your black colleague who is there in a professional capacity or personal capacity to then attend to your needs is decentering, you know, their needs at this time of crisis. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing here lots of very um, detailed and, and probably far more eloquent instructions that are out there to follow. I, I mean, it, it's it's. It's a tricky one because I want to say do what's in your heart and be kind, but we know that actually what is in your heart and kindness isn't often enough and it may not be right. And that's why I think we're seeing all over social media these examples of people doing kind-hearted but ridiculous and often counterproductive things. So again, it's about if you want to do something, think about that first. So uh, one thing I, I, I've seen suggested is is an initial call that um, – Black academics, uh, black students, black staff have said, look, if you're a lecturer or a, a, a fellow student, reach out to your black colleagues now and check they're okay. And that, I think, is a, a very important sentiment, especially if you're lecturing or you're a tutor, that you're uh, ensuring that your, your students are okay um, and, and that you've educated yourself first in some resources you can provide for them if they turn around and say they're not. They may want to talk to you about it, but equally, you may not be the safest person or they may not feel safe talking to you. So who else wants that role and is prepared for that role who can support them? So what you don't do is think, OK, there's another black person in my department. I'll give them that job. You know, you, you check that somebody is, is, is um, ready to, and willing to do that role with your black students, but you support them as much as possible. But then I've also seen a, a lot of, of black uh scholars saying you know they've had calls from white people that they met once at a conference seven years ago uh, you know and actually that makes them feel very unnerved and disquieted because it's like am I a the only black person you know and b why did you reach out it's almost like a performance that you're doing now so I think it's about you know if you are a tutor or a, a PI or anybody like that that you've got responsibility over other staff or students or it might be that you're working in academia and um in admin or as a cleaner or cleaning supervisor or whatever, and you've got staff that you're working with, and are they okay? And if they're not okay, what could you do? And it might be you signpost them somewhere else. That That's the job you take on. Or it might be listen. Um, what you certainly don't do is tell them how they feel because you don't know. But you can listen. Um, but I think equally sort of hold, holding in that desire to do good by making sure that if you are doing good, it's done appropriately. It's not a performance for you or something you're doing to absorb yourself of some guilt or that you kind of immediately go on social media and tell everybody that you did this this kind of thing. I, I think, you know, if you if you want to make a change, it's starting with you primarily and then it's with the people that you know who are white um, and 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 extending it from from there. Um, but but. Yeah, learning is important. Listening is important. I don't think you have to broadcast that you're listening and learning because I think then if that changes into nothing, it's, um, well, it's very disappointing and it's unfair. There's also, I think, the issue of being really careful about what you share. So, um, you know, there's lots of images on social media that are uh, are horrific. Um, and there's a whole thing that, that really troubles me about where someone's last moments, their final moments become entertainment. They become 
you know, that you're passing it around. And, and I, I, I do think you can say maybe privately in an email group or on a WhatsApp group to white people you know, or maybe it's to your white followers on social media. There is a film out there and this is what it depicts. Not in graphic detail, but this is what it depicts. And you may want to go and find that and watch it because you should see what's happened without this assumption that you must broadcast it to everybody. Because if you have got uh, black followers, black colleagues, black students, black friends, um, or just people that are interacting you on social media who don't follow you but come into contact with what you're sharing, it kind of amplifies this trauma. And I think it's just thinking very, very carefully about images that you're sharing, about accounts that you're sharing, stories that you're sharing. You can forewarn people and say, I'm going to share this thing, proceed with caution. But certainly some social media, Twitter is one example, that you can say to people, I'm going to share this thing. But then the next tweet, you know, it, it may appear in people's timelines in, an, in a very asynchronous way. So they've had no warning that this trauma is coming. Um, and, and that goes back to this point again of saying, oh, gosh, this is terrible and shocking, uh, as if you've never seen this before. I mean, maybe this is the first time you've seen something that terrible. And, and that needs work. That, that trauma for yourself needs processing and working through. But it's going to be a very different trauma for other people whom this is not new and hasn't been new for hundreds of years and who may have directly experienced something similar themselves that you are sharing without an acknowledgement of that. So I, I, I think it's this, you're, you're going to have to make decisions and you will make them wrong, I make them wrong, of what you share, what you say, what you try and do um, and uh, you will have to keep learning. Um, but you... I, I don't think the fact that you're learning should stop you from from taking action. Um, and remembering also that there is not a homogenous black community. Black people are very, very different, uh, as are white people. And so um, assuming that everybody will agree with you, even if you're making anti-racist statements or talking about whiteness, you know, not everybody will. For lots of reasons. You might get it wrong and people write, you know, correct you, but you might find that that. Or some black people say you've done something wrong. Black people say you've done something right. So you are going to have to, I think, really be careful that if you've actually done something that is inadvertently racist, but some black people say it's okay, that you don't decide that that, that that is okay and that, you know, one black person has affirmed it, therefore you don't have to take further action. It's a bit like that, but some of my best friends are black kind of yeah, tropes absolutely. that we see being used, you know. But uh, I mean, I mean on I, the flip side of that, I've actually been thinking quite a lot about um, sort of a, as a sort of long, longish term anti-racist person and, and a mixed race person. Um, I became aware of something this week during Black Lives Matter, which was seeing a lot of people on Facebook who I've had interactions with. And I know that they hold uh, certain views surrounding white supremacy that I think they're actually quite unaware of. Um, they they would term themselves as, you know, I'm not a racist. And I think they're probably right. It's just that they're equally not an anti-racist in the way that they think they are. So then, you know, I've seen them posting about Black Lives Matter matters and going to the marches and things. And I had to really stop myself um, and decide to have a little bit of an amnesty on very small things that people have done in the past. You know, I'm not talking about people who are out there, you know, voting for the far right or, or 
being actively racist, but I've definitely taken a look at some of some people in my in my circle who I would consider as as certainly not anti-racist. And I've just had to say this is a turning point and people are becoming much more aware of it. And as you quite rightly pointed out, um, some people, it is the first time that they've seen these videos. It is the first time that they've become aware of this. And why not? They live in a society where a lot of racist things happen and then everybody leaps onto that uh, from the establishment and says, oh, no, but that's not racism. That's not racist. We're not racist. We're not racist in this country. So it's sort of understandable that people have stayed in that safe little bubble and and listened to that because it's nicer to think that way. And I just thought to myself, actually... I'm going to take a really deep breath every time I see one of these people who is who are just taking their first steps and they are going to make mistakes and I am not going to hold them responsible for something a little bit ignorant they might have said two years ago. Instead, I've decided to make a conscious effort to just think, good, I'm happy. I'm happy that actually they're taking those first steps and I'm not going to do any good by reminding them <laughs> of like previous not so great things. And, you know, so I, I'm just hoping that actually everybody can meet in the middle a little bit that, you know, everyone, oh, I don't want to phrase it as we should be kind to uh, racists because that's not it at all. But there, there is this huge uh, group in the middle who are quite susceptible to, to being drawn towards racism when when they feel like, you know, every time they speak, every time they say something, they are attacked and it's held against them forever. So, you know, I am advocating for a little bit of uh, leniency at this time on people's past uh, statements and to just say, you know, as long as people are actually showing up, educating themselves, not making the black people in their life <laughs> do all the work for them, um, and genuinely do do have become aware of something that they weren't aware of before and do want to be supportive, then I, I think, yeah, I've, I've decided personally I'm going to try and be a bit more welcoming and uh, less judgmental. <laughs> so It's a hard one, though, isn't it? Because I, I imagine that, that there will be people listening who feel like you and are like, well, actually, yes, I want to welcome, you know, people who've, who've had this awareness raising and 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 there'll be other people who I'm sure be thinking well you know come on you should, if they don't know by now what can we do and and I, I do think I've seen this a lot with advice giving that that in times of trauma in times of grief we whatever is causing our trauma and grief we are often very very angry and so it's it almost easier to lash out at somebody who's trying but stumbling and uh, you know rather than the person who's overtly awful um although sometimes I think people you know almost want to to be angry with those as well it's it's like I think it's this sort of expectation that we we kind of have to forgive and welcome and and I I think it's tricky because again there is an expectation that if white people fail that it would be the job of black people either to forgive or educate um and and for you know you asked me as a white woman a way that perhaps we could move forward one thing i've been doing and and like you is i've seen people not getting it wrong 
but people who previously I would have thought it's like oh never seen you mention this before or um, there's a very powerful hashtag at the moment called black in the ivory where uh, black uh, people are talking about their experiences in academia and I've been looking at that and thinking gosh yes that's that's happened I've seen that happen and then a person you know who I know have perpetrated the thing is there tweeting Black Lives Matter and I, I think it, maybe it's a role again for white people there to say great to see you doing this uh, I found these really helpful resources can we have a study group together can we talk about this together are we getting this into the curriculum how are we getting this when we're returning back to universities in the next academic year how is this going to be embedded within our curriculum how is it going to be embedded in our university infrastructures how are we going to start you know addressing how many um, black students we have how are we going to support our students against racism on campus how are we going to amend our syllabi how are we going to ensure that our entire faculty is not all white um, you know all of those things matter in a conversations that can be had um, and and I, I think that there's also the issue that that I, I does need challenging where I have seen white people who have been corrected in academia, not just at this moment in time, but a lot over the many decades I've been in academia, where they have been corrected by a black person entirely rightly because they were wrong and the black person is correcting them with information and being generous with their time when they needn't have to be. And the white person interprets that criticism as um, not just being told that they're wrong, but some kind of act of, of violence. So they would then report that the black person is aggressive or strident. And again, a lot of accounts coming from black black men, that the idea that, that you have to constantly moderate yourself by being agreeable and being not too forceful, otherwise you will be seen as 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 wrong or um, overbearing or, or strident are, are really toxic uh, things that can happen. So some of the things I think that people can do is to study um, these hashtags, to notice if it's happened, and also do a bit of soul searching. All of us, I think, will say, I, I've probably done some of those things. And you saw it happen in action. Why was that? And what would you do differently when it happens again? Um, because I think very often we, as you say, there's lots of people that, that you know who would, would not describe themselves as racist, but they, they either do things that are racist or they agree with it because they don't say that wasn't all right. And sometimes you don't say it wasn't all right because you were so taken aback by it, you just were thrown, as was everybody. But that doesn't mean to say that if you've gone home and thought, just carry on thinking it was awful and you don't say or do anything and and another key thing i think just to flag up within this is that the intersection i think around um black scholars and disability so for disabled black scholars there's a whole kind of cohort of people who are you know being sidelined because it, it's it's not just the sort of racism in the academy that's a problem but it's ableism and when those two kind of go together it's a problem and there's been i think an attempt by um, anti-racist, black and white anti-racist, to flag up racism by either implying it's a mental illness or, or using ableist slurs or where um, a number of um, disabled people have been trying to join in discussions that the discussions are not accessible to them or if they've been on marches 
and you know, people have been able towards them on those marches. So while we're learning this, I, I think the fact is that you're never learning one thing. You know, you, you're going to be learning about all sorts of privileges that you might have. And, and I think whiteness is the, the one for white people to attend to. But it will it be, it's not just going to be on its own. It will be around sexism. It will be around ableism. There's lots of things to attend to. And that can feel like there's too much. I can't take it all on. Or I don't know how to do any of it. Or I can't do any of it well. Well, yeah, yeah you won't do it well. But the more you learn the better you'll get at it and and you just keep trying I, I think is you've got to just keep trying at this and 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 be be aware of where people are taking action and the fact that this is there's an energy about this um that we cannot lose the momentum of now you know the, the, there's been awful things that have happened about this pandemic but one thing that has happened is we are aware and and we aren't going to switch off Hopefully. Well, that sounds like a really good, positive uh, place to end. So thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. That's all for this time. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a dilemma yourself, please send it to hrhscience at gmail.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and most importantly, Black Lives Matter.